David, a man after God's own heart, part 20. The title of this morning's message, The Exile King, from 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 to 30. I hope in all these uh, long series, uh, we're up to part 20 already, that you have been blessed as I, as I have been preparing them. David's kingdom had, for a while, embodied something of the greatness of what the kingdom of God looks like. Unfortunately, after his sin with Bathsheba, things took a turn for the worse. We could say that the wheels started to fall off. And, and, and last week we spoke on the terrible crimes of rape and murder within his own family. And although David was angry with what happened, he seemed to, in the aftermath, do nothing about it. So Absalom took it upon himself to avenge his sister's rape by their brother. And after a while, Absalom um, killed Amnon, David banished Absalom away from his kingdom for a few years. And after he was, he was brought back, and after he was allowed to come back, David still kept a distance away from Absalom. But during this time, he was slowly but surely preparing himself to challenge David for the throne. Now this section uh, between chapters 15 to 19 of, of 2 Samuel uh, tell the story of how all this became the greatest threat to David's kingdom and the greatest threat that he ever experienced. And while David was getting on in years, he wasn't a young chap anymore, the main reason his reign was vulnerable is because he was weakened by his own sins and failures. Now, this was obviously part of God's judgment. And the challenge would come from his eldest. At this stage, Absalom was the eldest son, but Absalom was also ambitious. And he would seek to take advantage of the weaknesses of his father. In all this, there are important lessons for us about how power and ambition works, and the length that some go to obtain it. But behind it all, behind it all, all the machinations of politics and all of this, God is still sovereign. God is still on the throne. God will still look after his chosen servant. Our first heading this morning, playing politics from verses 1 to 6, and then we look at the subheadings underneath that. Absalom, the Bible tells us, um, had, he was a beautiful man. He had long hair, uh, was the, the pretty poster boy for the new up-and-coming generation. He was exciting and exuded confidence and flair to the younger crowd. What he did and how he went about it provides us with some fascinating studies about how power and politics works. And it's, and it's amazing that the formula that he used 3,000 years ago is actually still 
been repeated. It has been repeated ever since and it's still repeated today. In verse 1, we have pomp. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. Now, with all those men running ahead of him, it was obvious Absalom did not want the, the chariot for speed. He wasn't going to break any land speed records here. But he was trying to make an impressive parade, a procession of, of people in front of him so that everybody else could admire. Now, while chariots were a common, a common thing with the surrounding nations, this is actually the first time that they, the, the chariots are mentioned in, on full display by the Israelites. Absalom, the, the politician, sensed that the people wanted a king like the other nations. So he gave them that image. So first of all is pomp. Then we have promise in verses 2 to 4. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. And whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision... Absalom would call him out and say, what town are you from? And he would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but you know, there there is no representative of the king to hear you, which is quite unfortunate. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case would come to me and would see that they receive justice. Ancient kings also served as the the highest court in the land of their kingdom. So if someone believed that a a local court uh, did not give them justice, then they appealed to a higher court, and the highest court was the court of the king, where the king heard their case uh, and then adjudicated justice. So Absalom worked the crowd. He positioned himself strategically where people came, at the city gate, which used to serve as the, as the court, the court place. And so he positioned himself strategically early in the morning, both Physically, and he positions himself ideologically so as to appear accessible to the common man. And he reinforced their claim by saying, look, your claim is valid. The the purpose of all of this is obviously to, to stir up dissatisfaction with David's government by secretly campaigning against his father, he promised to provide justice, supposedly, that supposedly his father, David, denied to the rest of the people. But Absalom, he said, no, I'm going to give it to you. Then we have the pleasing in verses 5 to 6. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, you know, take hold of him and kiss him. Absalom behaved this way toward all the Israelites who who came to the king asking for justice and so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Absalom was skilled at projecting this 
man of the people image. It's, it's in an obvious display, he wouldn't let others bow down to him, but he would lift them up, he would put his hands around, uh, his arms around them, he would, he would shake their hand and he would actually kiss them, which was a, a Middle Eastern greeting as well. He worked on all of Israel with this strategy to arouse the affection and support of the people. This campaign to steal the hearts of the people went on for four years. He took his time, but it was blatant deception. The remarkable thing about Absalom's style of politics is that it works. On the campaign trail, the politician will remove his tie, you know, roll up his sleeves, you know, put on his Akubra hat and be photographed kissing babies. We can see, look, you think about it and you can see through it and yet you still go along with it. And during elections they promise the world but once in power they are shielded by their entourage. They're unapproachable. Now the art of politics hasn't really changed all that much, has it? You gauge the level of discontent, you listen to their complaints, make sure that you blame the current leaders, offer yourself as a solution to their problems. It doesn't have to be true. It has to sound genuine, it has to sound believable. The fact that Absalom managed to do this in the context of a monarchy and not a democracy, is even more remarkable. Then, the next stage is taking power, verses 7 to 12. We won't read all the verses, but this is what it says, Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, As soon as you hear the sound of trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been divided, invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite David's counsel, to come to Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing. Now, he's already shown himself to be a patient man when, when, when he waited a couple of years to carry out his revenge against his, his, his brother Amnon. He just bid his time and waited. He spent years in exile. And now, after four years of being coming back into the kingdom and into the palace, he undermines the authority of his very own father, and he, he uses religious language saying, look, you know, I'm going to go over there. I need to make an offer, uh, offer a sacrifice to God because this is a vow that I took when I was away. David believed it. But this was strategic. You see, Hebron was out of the king's eyes. It was also the place where Absalom was 
born. He's going back to his town of birth. But also, Hebron was the place where David was first anointed king. Isn't it interesting that David was oblivious to all of this or if he knew something was going on, he really wasn't all that concerned about his son's subversive activity. Was he naive? Was he too trusting? This was a mistake because he failed to act and he failed to discern the evil that was, you know, that was rising. And he did not understand what was happening in the land until it was too late. Absalom was skillful. He was skillful in bringing things to this stage, how he did it. Uh, you know, from under the shadow of a king is, is, is astonishing. It, it showed in how he, he gathered support throughout all of the tribes of Israel and prepared the whole of the nation for a coup without arousing his father's suspicions. That is, it takes some doing, doesn't it? Some planning. And we notice how even David, even David, Israel's greatest king, a profound politician, an able general, a warrior, a brave soldier, a gifted musician and poet, a prophet of God, a deliverer of the country, a man after God's own heart, is now driven from his own dominion by his own son, abandoned by his fickle people. How power is... is Come and go, right? One moment you're at the top, the next moment you're down at the bottom. But not everyone abandoned him. And despite his many failures, he was never abandoned by God. And that is something that we need to remember. In verses 13 to 30, leaving Zion, leaving Zion. A messenger, in verse 13, um, a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Verse 14, then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. The strategic sense of David's prompt decision to leave his palace in Jerusalem is clear. If Absalom had the, the, the massive support that had been suggested, then remaining within the city walls would be dangerous for him and everyone else with him and the rest of the, the city as well. David knew what it was like to be a fugitive. He spent many years on the run. We know that. But now in his senior years, an older man, a much older man, 
He has to do it all again. Make no mistake, this flight from Jerusalem was painful. It was significant. It it hit David really, really hard. Listen, Listen to, we'll read the verse 30 again. David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was, he was barefoot. What was going through him, you know, as he's mourning, he's crying, he's, he's weeping, he, he cannot help but, but feel this way. He is so downcast. How did it come to this? What will happen? What will become of him and his kingdom? What would become of God's promises? Reality was starting to hit pretty hard. And this is what he prayed in Psalm 3. And the inscription in Psalm 3 actually reads, A Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Verse 1 says, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Now on the surface, all of this appears to be just another power grab in politics. Repeated countless times throughout history, right? But here, I want to bring you to a a deeper spiritual parallel that you you blink and you miss it, but, but we are going to highlight it. Just as David had said to his people, come we must flee, Jesus told his disciples as they left the upper room, come now, let us leave from John chapter 14 verse 31. Jesus knew that he was about to do what David had done. His experience will be the fulfilment of what was anticipated in David's story. And when David and the people reached the outskirts of the city, in verse 17, they halted at the edge of the city. There is this pause, there's this urgency to, to leave Jerusalem, but then there is, a urgent, there is a pause from this urgent flight. And as they stand there, there is an opportunity to reflect for a moment on the, on the king who is departing from the city of David. David departing from the city of David. In verse 23 it says, The whole countryside wept aloud as all of the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on towards the wilderness. Everybody came out and they had to watch. They knew that something terrible was going on. They were crying because they could not believe what was happening. How did it come to this? The extraordinary kingdom was crumbling before their eyes. And as they come out, the Kidron Valley is on the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem. And as, as they're they coming down, 
they, they're crossing the valley and then they we're going to come up the other side. Uh, because on the other side is, at the bottom of the hill is, is Gethsemane and on the top of the hill is, the, is Mount of Olives. And, and as he's coming down and then going to be going up again, David is, is overcome with emotion and so are the people all around him. What a sight that must have been. It was, I think for all intents and purposes, probably David's darkest day. Again, as they walked across the Kidron Valley, King David was anticipating the very footsteps of Jesus a thousand years later. This is how God works, right? And there's no accident here. This is from John chapter 18, verse 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. This is the only time that the Kidron Valley is actually mentioned in, in, in the Gospels. On the other side, there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. As Jesus left the city, he also crossed the valley and then climbed the garden at the base of the Mount of Olives. And in all of this, he was simply following the footsteps of David in an extraordinary way that only God can do this. The sufferings of David anticipated the sufferings of the son of David. And, and we know that Jesus quoted the Psalms even as he was being crucified. Similarly, the long-awaited Messiah, the son of David who promised so much, whose kingdom would be the kingdom of God. What had happened to all of that? All that faith that the disciples and everybody around Jesus, all that. What, what happened? What happened to all of that? It, it appeared that it was all finished. It was humiliation and shame for Jesus and, and devastating for everybody who followed him and I think that's why everybody abandoned him of course until the evidence of the empty tomb was there but not everybody abandoned David loyal servants from verses 15 to 23 we have the officials the king's officials answered him your servants are ready to do whatever our Lord the King chooses. David found that although the hearts of the people, of the men of Israel had gone after Absalom, his servants who were with him in Jerusalem will remain faithful to him. They, they still regarded him as their Lord and King and they followed not just in words but they followed this in their actions as well. This contrast, doesn't it, with, with the Apostle Peter who boldly declared his loyalty to Jesus and then when he came to the crunch, he failed miserably and then Jesus had to go and restore him, right? 
So these are the loyal servants, the official. Then there were some foreigners as well. Verse 19 we read, The king said to Etai the Gittite, Why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You are a foreigner and exiled from your homeland. Verse 21, But Etai replied to the king, As surely as the Lord lives and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. Those those are marvellous words, aren't they? What a remarkable response. As, as, as David was watching this procession of his faithful supporters, Etai the Gittite, who was part of the Philistines, he caught his eye. He, he, and David couldn't understand why this, this newly arrived foreigner took the risk of such open loyalty to David. So this is why... David told him, stay with the king, meaning Absalom. And Etai answered, that's exactly what I intend to do, because you are the king. These foreigners were more faithful to him than most of his own people. And although his words were directed at Etai, who appeared to be their leader, he includes the other 600 Gittites and their families who were also part of the people. You know, they, they were faithful to, to David even when they, they knew and acknowledged that it could cost them very, very dearly. Whether in life or in death, we're going to follow you, mate. We're going to follow you. We're with you no matter what happens. That's, that's incredible service. That's incredible commitment. Because you see, true loyalty isn't demonstrated by mere words. Yeah, we're with you. But true loyalty is, is demonstrated only until you know it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something to be loyal. That's when you know it's true. And Etai was the kind of man that David wanted. And he's the type of, of man that Christ wants today. That's the type of follower that Jesus wants. That's the type of servant that Jesus is seeking. We recall his words in John twelve twenty five to 26. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it eternal life whoever serves me must follow me and where I am my servant will also be which in a roundabout way is exactly what Etai's response to David was wherever I am my servant will also be And then, last supporters are the priests, verses 24 to 26. Zadok was there too, and all the Levites who were there with him carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar offered sacrifice until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, 
take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favour in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if the Lord says, I am not pleased with you, then I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. Now as you you read this, you can skim very pass very quickly over these words, right? You just rush through them, but you need to slow down and, and, and understand a little bit of what is going on here. The priests were loyal to David, and even though it probably meant death for them if Absalom succeeded, you know, they didn't care, they were going to be loyal to David. For them, Absalom may, may have the city, but Absalom will not have the priests nor the sign of God's presence which was symbolised in the Ark of the Covenant. So what did they do? As they leave the city, they bring with them the Ark of the Covenant. But David says, stop. David objects. He knows all too well what happened to the Ark of the Covenant when it was taken into battle and then was stolen by the Philistines. We don't want that to happen again. For now... All that David can do is is submit to God's will for his life. There will be no gimmicks. There will be no superstition. There will be no amulets or good luck charms around the neck to bring you good luck about, about the future. God will not be conned into, you know, into any of this stuff by, by pilfering the ark. David had learnt. And this is what freedom of faith in the will of God looks like. It all depends on him. This is why he says, look, look, he says, if I find favour, if I find favour, if he says, I don't know. I'm not going to presume here what God will do. But if the son of David would also pray in the garden, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And I'm pretty sure these words were was spoken by Jesus very close or even in the same spot that David was was saying these words a thousand years later. We also, like David, we might be uncertain about what the future holds. Fears come and fears go but fears will only go as we surrender our will to the will of God. Whatever, whatever, whatever that might look like. Now, this surrendering ourselves to God's sovereignty, to his will, does not mean that we sit on our hands and just let go and let God type of thing and do nothing. Because even in David's story here, as soon as David surrenders himself to, into God's hands, he actually sends the priest back 
with the ark back into Jerusalem like a, a type of fifth column. They were going to gather information for him while they're in the city. Like David, like Jesus, we will also find freedom in complete submission to God's sovereignty. And he still will use us. He, will, he, will, he won't let us park our heads or our brains on the side of the road while he does his thing. He wants us to be active in his kingdom. In whatever task, whatever gift, whatever talent we have, we will continue to, to serve him in whatever capacity we have until the day he calls us home. That's what serving the Lord looks like. May God bless us.